If you remember last Lord's Day morning, we began a series upon the office of deacon. And I gave you five reasons as to why we have begun this series. And let me just quickly go over them again. Uh, one of the reasons I said was because we are just a little bit bigger and there are some things that do need to be taken care of that uh, sometimes they fall on my shoulders. And uh, if we have deacons or if we need deacons, then certainly that ought to be uh, relieved from me. Uh, it's true we don't own the property here, but there are some aspects in which we have to keep, do the upkeep and that sort of thing. Uh, also, secondly, we decided that uh, possibility, and again, we're certainly open to this, and this will be depending on, obviously, the Lord, first of all, and secondly, uh, the, the brethren themselves, as we hope to show in the teachings regarding this, that as we are in need of this help in this office, I'm hoping that the Lord will uh, cause us then to look out among us, as they did in Acts, and to choose those whom would fit the qualifications and who might be willing to fill the office for this. The third reason was to inform us then of the office itself. That is, what does a deacon do? What does it entail? What is he supposed to be doing? What should they be doing in such an office? Well, that is what we're hoping to look at in these next few uh, sermons that we'll be preaching or lessons that we'll be doing on this. Secondly, or fourthly, excuse me, and that's then to stir up those who are in the office to labor faithfully. We all need that. I need stirring up in my office of elder, and that is why at times I am not ashamed to tell you what are my responsibilities and my duties, and thus, uh, that way I know you know that I should be doing something. So that stirs me up then to know that, oh, they know I should be doing this, so I better be doing it. And we all need that. And uh, so that's why we preach the way and manner in which we do. It's to inform. Uh, we desire to speak to the mind, and thus we will capture the heart, as it were. We can at least get to, into your thinking and seeing and understanding the re responsibilities that each of us have. But in particular to this office here, uh, that those who are in it will labor faithfully in their work. And then obviously the last one is to, according to, as we understand what the office of deacon is, if Acts 6 is speaking of deacons, it is to relieve the elders so that they can work faithfully in their office in particular, as he says there in verse uh, 4 of Acts 6. I'm sorry, you should have been turning there already. I didn't tell you that, sorry. Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, where he says, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Uh, we saw last week, for instance, the something of the occasion of this office. That is, why did it arise? What was what's the need of this office? And we saw last time the beginning here in Acts six. Again, if this is speaking of deacons, I'm not necessarily convinced, but I'm also not necessarily convinced it's not. I'm just telling you the word itself in the English is not used. So, well, you say, well, the Greek word's used there, diakonos. Well, that's true, but even Jesus was called that. Did that make him a deacon? Well, of course not. Well, so again, we have to take the Bible in its context, even the words themselves in that relationship. But most commentators, I'll just say that, do, does, do believe that the sixth chapter of Acts is at least speaking in regards to a prototype or the beginnings of the office of deacon. Well, why did it take place? Well, let's begin reading there in verse 1 of Acts 6. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So we see why then 
this office was installed, or these people, or men in particular, were installed, was because of the situation that arose within the church. There was some dissension. There was some problems. There was some uh, a lack of unity here. And it came upon, in fact, a very important thing. There were some widows whom the law of God itself had certainly give the premium upon widows that they are to be taken care of. Even the law of Moses certainly spoke in that manner. And these brethren here in particular being Hebrews as well as Grecians who were Hebrews itself or Jews that were spread abroad, most likely were being, uh, they would have known the idea that widows were to be taken care of. Well, here then, they're not. And there arose, notice, a very serious matter. It's murmuring. And, of course, we know what God thinks about murmuring. He's never pleased with it. But here was the murmur. This was the case. And so the twelve get together. Notice in verse two, that is the twelve apostles, uh, the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is not reason or we would say it's not logical that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. In other words, it's not the responsibility of those who hold the office of preaching the word to make sure that the widows personally are taken care of. Now, they do have oversight of it, just as they have oversight of the whole church. But it's not their responsibility. It's not in their job description, if you will, to personally hand out the goods towards the widows. And so he tells them this. It's not reason that we should do leave the word and then go do this thing that is serve the tables and take care of the widows. And so then in beginning in verse three, he tell these uh, elders here or these apostles begin to tell them what they need to do. I want you to notice something here. This is where we begin this morning. We see that the leadership of the church takes notice of the situation. Now, obviously, others have. In verse 1, there's murmuring going on. So, obviously, uh, there are others who know. But it has come now to the attention of the apostles. You see, not every apostles or elders and that sort of thing don't necessarily know everything that's going on. But at this point, they find out, as we see in verse 2, and they come up within a plan of action. They say, first of all, it's not reasonable that we should uh, lave the word of God and serve tables. Their responsibility, they concluded, was not to neglect the service of the word of God. They wanted to be busy about preaching and teaching. And as we see there in verse 4, also giving themselves over unto prayer. So the first thing we see here is that the leadership here has taken notice of this situation. And they call then a what we'll call here a church meeting. This church meeting is not to get information from the brethren per se, but we see first of all that it's given to or they have this meeting in order to render out the necessary steps to take care of the situation. They've already convened, as it were. They've already decided what they're going to do. They're not asking the brethren, well, how do you think I ought to handle this? I wouldn't say that would be wrong in and of itself, as we know that there are others who do have wisdom. But these, this multiplicity of apostles here decided among themselves. Verse 3, Wherefore, brethren, here's what you're to do. Look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Notice, they gave the solution. They've seen the problem. 
And now they have wisdom to take care of the problem. So they've arrived at a solution. And the solution is this. First of all, we see they gave the number and the requirements of this office. Wherefore, brethren, verse 3, look ye out among you seven men. That's the number that you are to choose. Of honest report. So here are some of the qualification. Full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. So not only tell them the great the number that ought to be, at least in this particular situation, but also the requirements for this office. You'll notice here in verse three, the church, the body of brethren, doesn't make that decision, does it? And they didn't say, well, let's take a vote and then we'll write this in our Constitution. How many folks we ought to have serving in the office? And, by the way, we'll also decide what might be the qualifications. So, everybody, I want to hear a motion here on who... They didn't do that. They said, look, here's how it's going to be handled. The way to remedy this problem is to get some men in this office who will take care of this problem. And if the state we're in, probably close to 10,000 believers, is what some estimate here at this point, at least 5,000, we know that... Well, he says, these are the number that we can use, and here are the qualifications. Now, these qualifications that are found in verse 3, and also somewhat in verse 5, we see, I think, spelled out more plainly when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we read that last Lord's Day, you remember. So, in whatever they were doing here, we do see that there was some, uh, for lack of better terms, power or authority that the apostles take hold here and say, this is what we need. First of all, I want you to notice six things. I think I brought these out to the time before when we looked at this. First of all, is that they came to themselves what to do. That is, they discussed among themselves what was necessary to take place. Secondly... They saw where their priorities lie. Here again, there's a good hint for those who are in the office of whether deacon or elder for that matter. Realize what your priorities are. If someone is in the office of elder, then that priority, main priority, is to give yourselves over to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. If if there are folks in the office of deacon, then they ought to be ready and willing and see their priority as serving tables. Taking care of the temporal concerns of the church while the elders then, or those who minister in the word, take care of the spiritual activities. So, we need to see, brethren, our priorities. And this is where you can pray and be a help to us in these things. Pray for that the, those in these offices will have right priorities. There's some application there. Thirdly, we see that they began the action. Though the murmuring was already taking place, but when we come to verse 3 now, we see that the overseers or the apostles here are the ones who, as it were, take hold of the reins and begin to say what needs to be taken care of. They also, as we've already pointed out, they gave the number and they gave the requirements of the office. And they gave the body power then to decide who they wanted. Notice that. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report. He says, we're not picking them. You do that. So the responsibility then on 
choosing these elders or choosing these um, deacons is not mine. That's not my priority. That is your priority. But it will be, though, I'll have to, you know, those in the office of elder, obviously, will be the ones who oversee that and give the approval. Because it says in verse 6, they do lay their hands on them. That is, they do give their approval in these things. So, at this point, they do give the body power to decide who to choose, whom to choose. So, there is an aspect, then, of congregational uh, I hate to say power because then it, we always take that wrongly. But you, in this context, you know what I mean. They are the ones who are responsible. Let me put it that way. Congregational responsibility. Big term, but we just made it up. Uh, congregational responsibility on choosing out the deacons or these men here, whoever they may be. And then notice the leadership then appoints them. The church, however they did it, Chose out these seven, whether by vote or just a da 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 da. Obviously, it had to be some way. But they voted who was to be in that office. Well, notice, again, they bring out their priorities there in verse 4. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. They trusted here the brethren to take care of the business. When they said, look, this is what needs to be done. They recognized, even though there was some dissension among them, even though they know there was some disunity and problems, that when they would suggest this, they recognized that they would take care of the problem. You choose you out. Your resp- if I give you my responsibility, as we see in verse 4, look, I'm going to give myself to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Then... I should be able to entrust you to do what you need to be doing. Just as you trust me to do what I should be doing, I trust you to do what you need to do. Well, how does the church react? Well, if this was a Baptist church, they'd have been griping. But apparently it's not. Because notice, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. They were at unity in regards to... To this solution. Isn't that great? But I wonder how often that would go over in churches today. Now, let me tell you, you elders, you apostles, how it really ought to be done. I don't like the way you're thinking here. That's normally what we come up with, isn't it? How many have been in churches like that? I have. Thankfully, we have a well-ordered, at least in some measure, our church here, which we can be very thankful of. But notice, it does please the whole church. When the leadership acted upon the situation, they don't murmur, they don't complain about it, nor do they even make an objection. They followed it. This doesn't mean they had abs- the apostles had absolute rule or anything like that. I'm just telling you here that they were willing to abide by the solution that was set forth. If you want to call that dictatorship, you can if you will. But the Lord blesses this. Look in verse 7. And the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. 
one of the great, not again, not not here or among our brethren here, uh, when pastors do their jobs and take leadership and do come up with hopefully good solutions for problems in the church. Uh, it's not always the case that people are willing to follow that, are they? Usually a lot of complaining going on and murmuring. We don't see this in the first church. They murmured at first because of the problem, but once the solution is set forth, they hear it. Should be good, wouldn't it? Of course, if you had a dumb idea, I suppose you need to talk to the elder about it. But this certainly seemed to please the people. And as I said in verse 7, it certainly pleased the Lord as well. And I recognize here they're obviously under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And all of this being taken place as part of the early church and God, Christ's leadership uh, directly in, uh, empowering the apostles and such. But again, we see an example here to us. Especially if these are deacons that are being mentioned here in this passage. So we see that the brethren here were pleased with the way that the matter was handled. They were pleased with the responsibility that they had in it. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen. Notice that, and so forth. So they were pleased even with the responsibility that were given to them to do what they were called upon to do. And then, of course, the Lord then as his blessing. Now, notice, though, who they do choose. We see, uh, in the saying, please, the whole multitude, verse 5, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Now, we know here what happens to Stephen. We see in verse 8 in particular that he was full of faith and power, and he did great wonders and miracles among the people. He, in particular, is singled out. And then there is Philip, and we also find Philip doing some other things. He evidently, according to most commentators, and uh, would seem to have some groundwork for that, is that not long after this, he becomes uh, what would be the position of an evangelist. It seems that he leaves the church here, and he is the one who goes and lives in another part of that area. And thus, uh, obviously, they didn't stay in this area and, become, and remain deacons all their lives here, at least uh, for Philip. And then there was Pacharis and Nicanor and Timon and Barameus and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And so we see here the brethren in particular that was chosen. Now, I bring this out here is to recognize what? Well, look in verse 3. Here they tell them the qualifications that these men are to have, at least here. They're to be of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. There would be three things that would be... Uh, necessitated in this office, they, cons they consider. And so, the church then recognizes these qualifications in these brethren. Thus, what does that tell us here? Well, it tells us two things in particular. One, it tells us that these particular men must have been having some influence already within the nature of the church or the way the things were going. Because how else would they have known this? So these were notable, noticeable traits, characteristic godliness in these men. They were known for this in order to be chosen. And this is why I said last week, if someone isn't already serving 
without the title, then there will be no need for me to lay my hands upon them, thinking that somehow with the title they will begin to serve. May not happen, will it? See, we want brethren who already, as 1 Timothy chapter 3 enlightens us further about it. In verse uh, 10, and let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon. That's 1 Timothy 3 and verse 10. So it's not just any of us, but it is those who are already in some way, some fashion, demonstrating in some measure the qualifications of a deacon and some of the actions of a deacon, that is, of servitude. Now, again, as we've mentioned, that's basis, basis, should be basic to all of us. We all should be servants, one of another. And if we're not, then we're not fit for this office. We're not even fit to be Christians. Because one of the marks of a true Christian is that he serves. That was something that the apostles had to learn at an early stage, you remember. Remember, they sent their, a couple of the apostles sent their mother to Jesus and said, Look, I want my son to reign on this side and him on the other. And Jesus said, Oh, you've got the kingdom all wrong. To be great in the kingdom is to serve. And so there is a responsibility then, brethren, of all of us to serve. But especially then in this office... And those who would want to hold it, or who you all call for it, it ought to be notable already. What else? Well, another thing we see is that they did have these qualifications, full of the Holy Ghost, and wisdom. Why do you think they would need wisdom? Well, because they were the part and parcel of the solution, weren't they? There is some rumblings going on amongst the membership regarding the widows being neglected. You're going to have to have wisdom enough, deacons, to be able to go in and take care of the problem. You're going to have to make, you're going to have enough wisdom to make sure that there aren't those who are missed. So there's wisdom there. And this goes back again to the idea, this is stuff that's notable. And these brethren. So we want men in this office who can communicate and who have wisdom to be able to discern things. It's not like they come in seriously in, in the building, and I'm using this as a figure, and they have their those blinders on and they don't see anything, but I gotta go sit down and have my worship. No, they should be able to come in and take note of things. They should be able to come in and be able to communicate with the brethren to find out where is and what is a situation that needs to be handled in the temporal ways. They see this. They note that. Not in a critical way. It's, I've got to get that done. There's, some, there's a problem here. We want to settle it. We want to get it taken care of. I want to allow my pastor not to have to labor in this or that when taking him away from his responsibility. That's the kind of men that the church needs. You see, if these really were deacons here, any church would be blessed to have them, wouldn't they? Well, then, secondly on this is the fact that the people then themselves 
could discern. Remember, they're told here, you pick them out. Look ye out among you, seven men of honest report. Well, not only do these men have to have these notable characteristics about them, but the congregation must know one another in some sense and in some measure to know this. You often hear, you know, I can, if I join a church with about 5,000 people, I think I can get lost and never have to worry about anything. That didn't happen at Jerusalem. How would they have known these men were as qualified as they were amongst at least 5,000 brethren? Because we know on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved and 2,000 more later on. How did they know that? They didn't get lost. These men get lost in the crowd? Surely then, brethren, a crowd our size, we ought to be able to know one another well enough to discern these things. So the responsibility of knowing one another there is on the part of the church, isn't it? We're out of time. But we can safely say it worked. Because that when the apostles said, it says in verse 6, whom, that is these men were chosen by the congregation, they looked out, found them, and they were set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And we commonly call that an ordination service. If you want to call it that, that's fine. If you don't, I don't care either. But the point of the matter is their hand, they were prayed upon and their hands, the hands were laid upon them as a form of identification that these are the brethren whom you have chosen, you picked, to take care of the situation at hand. Now, the question may ask, well, does that mean we have to have seven? Well, the answer to that is, I don't believe so. Because for the very point, none of these were needed until the problem arose. And thus, it's the problems then that would seem to necessitate the numbers of the individuals. If we're very few in problems, and few in people for that matter, thus then less folks would be needed. That's just how I reason it. Just same way with the idea of, you know, we do believe in a plurality of elders. Well, if there's just a small handful, and if you're easy to pastor, then why would I need three or four helpers? That type of thing. Or why there would be three. I shouldn't have said it that way. That makes it sound like they're my lackey. That's not what I believe at all. If we have elders, they will be co-elders with me. They will be... Uh, elders, my pastor, and all that sort of thing, and I, they will pastor me, and I will pastor them as we pastor the flock. So I didn't mean to say it in that light. So let me correct that for any of you listening on tape out there who may be wondering about that. We do believe in a plurality of elder. We believe in not only the plurality, but the, uh, what do they call that? Oh, what's that called? Parity, that's the word. That is, there's an equal equality as far as the offices are concerned. But also there's a plurality in the diaconate, as we see from Philippians 1. Paul wrote the bishops and the deacons, plural. So there is a plurality. Well, again, as I said, apparently all this worked out because God does bless it. And that issue doesn't come up at all. Well, that's Acts 6. This is the reason 
as to why, if these are deacons, that they were brought in. Now we come later on next week, Lord willing, we'll come back to 1 Timothy 3, and then we will look then at those qualifications either amplified or explained here in 1 Timothy 3. The men who are to hold this office, what are they to be like? When you begin to look out, then you need to look at this to determine what these men are to be like.